This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. John Hilton III was born in San Francisco and grew up in Seattle. He served a mission in Denver and got a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University. While there, he met his wife, Lonnie, and they have six children. They have lived in Boise, Boston, Miami, Mexico, Jerusalem, and China. Currently, they live in Utah. John has a master's degree from Harvard and a PhD from BYU, both in education. John is a professor of religious education at BYU. John has published several books with Deseret Book, including Considering the Cross, How Calvary Connects Us with Christ. John loves teaching, being with his family, doing humanitarian work, learning Chinese, and performing magic. You can find him on Facebook or Instagram for some short, fun, come follow me videos each week. John, thank you for joining me on this Still Rowing podcast. We are grateful to have you with us today. Thank you. It's great to be back. Today, we will be discussing John's latest book, Considering the Cross, How Calvary Connects Us with Christ. I poured over this book. I read it in less than a week. And that's not to say that I breezed through it. I took copious notes. I was thoroughly engrossed. I loved every minute of it. And I'm so excited to talk with you, John, about this and also to share it with our listeners. And I, I hope that they, if, if it resonates with them, I hope that they'll read it. But if anything, I'm just excited to share the insights that you have been so thoughtful about in your book and to share it with each of them. I'm hoping that you can share with us maybe briefly what inspired you to write this book in the first place. So it all began one day with a conversation I was having with a colleague, and he said to me, John, when it comes to the atonement of Jesus Christ, why do you think so many Latter-day Saints focus on Gethsemane? And first I was like, well, duh, because that's where Christ atoned for our sins. Like, (laughs) that's obvious. And and then I was kind of curious, like, so is that factually true? Do do Latter-day Saints really focus on Gethsemane? And so I did a series of surveys. Uh, The the short version is I, I would ask a question, something like, Although Christ's atonement was a process, where would you say Jesus mostly atoned for our sins? And asking the question in different ways with different answers, a majority, sometimes a vast majority of people would emphasize Gethsemane, and they wouldn't talk at all about Christ's crucifixion. So I was curious to know, okay, well, where does this come from? And so I started looking at the scriptures, and it turns out that there's two passages of scripture that talk about Jesus Christ suffering for our sins in Gethsemane, there's more than 50 that talk about Christ dying for our sins on the cross. Mm -hmm. And about 40 of those are coming from the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants. So this is Mm -hmm. a, it's a restoration thing. So I thought, well, maybe it's Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith and his personal writings and teachings never talks about Christ suffering for our sins in Gethsemane, but on multiple occasions talks about the importance of the crucifixion. And it's the same with every president of the church from Brigham Young down to President Nelson. Um, And if you get me going on this, I'll I'll bring out graphs (laughs) and charts and all sorts of crazy stuff. But the the bottom line is, whether you look at the hymns, the scriptures, Joseph Smith, later church leaders, or Jesus Christ himself, on, on one occasion in Doctrine and Covenants section 19, Jesus Christ powerfully describes his sufferings in Gethsemane. But there's more than 20 times when Jesus Christ talks about his death on the cross. Mm. And so 
just kind of having this come to my mind of the the scriptural and prophetic emphasis on crucifixion. But but frankly, like when I taught about Christ's atonement, I almost exclusively focused on Gethsemane and didn't say very much about Christ's crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And and both are important. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. But what I realized is there was a huge aspect of the Savior's atonement that I personally was understudying, underemphasizing. And there was a lot more for me to learn about in that area. Mm, Sure. Well, and I I hear you saying that and I can relate. I mean, that's been my life and my testimony as well has been mostly based off of Gethsemane and that study and seeing pictures of Gethsemane um, as opposed to to the crucifixion. So can you explain then the apprehension of the symbol of the cross and in effect the crucifixion. Why is there a general attitude among members of the church to avoid a symbol of the cross then, do you think? So that's a great question. I think it is important for us to separate the symbol of the cross from the doctrine of the importance of Christ's crucifixion. Okay. So again, there's there's dozens of scriptures that talk about Jesus dying for our sins. In 3527, when Jesus explains the gospel, he says, this is the gospel. My father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. It, like He puts it front and center. Mm. So, but you're right. As a church, we institutionally have not used the cross as a symbol. And I think that sometimes that the fact that we don't use the cross as a symbol has led some members of the church to downplay the doctrinal significance of Christ's crucifixion even though those are two different things. Sure, yeah. To to go back to the idea of the the cross as a symbol, um, it's actually a long story and there's there's lots of interesting details with it. The the short version of the story is that if we were to go back in time to 1820, Joseph Smith is going to the Methodists, the Baptists, the Presbyterians. At that time, none of those churches used the cross as a symbol. It was only the Catholic church uh, in America that used the cross as a prominent symbol. And there were no Catholic churches in Palmyra where Joseph Smith is growing up. It's not until the 1860s and 70s that the cross becomes a common Christian symbol in America. Hmm. And during that time, Latter-day Saints are somewhat isolated in Utah. So it's, it's not that Joseph Smith makes a conscious choice that we're not going to use the cross as a symbol. It just wasn't part of his cultural milieu, so to speak. But even that notwithstanding, uh, early Latter-day Saints, uh, some of them at least, did use the cross as a symbol. There's a few church buildings that are built in Utah in the early 1900s that have cross imagery on them. There's lots of portraits taken of Latter-day Saint women and men who are wearing some type of cross jewelry. B.H. Roberts of the 70 has a cross on his tombstone, all of which is to say that the the idea to say like, oh, the church doesn't use the cross or church members don't use the cross is not historically accurate. The Mm -hmm. 1852 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants has a cross on it. Um, I think for, for most Latter-day Saints, if you were to ask them, well, why today, why doesn't your church use the cross? They would paraphrase a statement that President Hinckley made in 1975. He said uh, he had given a tour of the Mesa, Arizona temple to a Protestant minister. And at the end of the tour, the Protestant minister says, hey, you guys claim to be Christian. How come there's no cross in your temple? Mm-hmm. And, and in part, President Hinckley said, for us, the cross is a symbol of a dying Christ. And we believe in the living Christ. 
And, and I think it's important you know, to have the context that in the same talk where President Hinckley shared that, he heavily emphasized the doctrinal importance of Christ's crucifixion. Mm-hmm. He said, we cannot forget that. Uh, another thing that, that I, I've been kind of thinking about is, you know, that, that was in 1975. And, and honestly, a lot of things have changed in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints since 1975. I think how, how a person views the cross is largely cultural, right? Mm-hmm. To some people, it may represent uh, death, but to others, it may represent life. I've talked to many Protestants who, for them, the empty cross that they wear is a symbol of the living Christ because Christ isn't on the Christ. Right. The cro- Christ isn't on the cross. It reminds them that he's alive. Yeah. Catholics who sometimes wear uh, a crucifix, which would be a cross with Christ on the cross, would uh, they also believe in the living Christ? And they might say, this is a symbol of the love that Jesus Christ has for me. So I, I think part, part of um, the opportunity that we have as Latter-day Saints is to realize that there's more than 2 billion Christians in the world. Mm-hmm. Latter-day Saints are about 1% of them. Mm-hmm. And for 99% of Christians, the cross is a symbol of their belief in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So it gives us actually an opportunity to build a bridge of common beliefs with other Christians. Absolutely. Well, and in your book, that was one of my favorite points, because as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, I was internalizing these questions like, how do I feel about the cross? And what if I had a cross in my home? And my initial response, which was so natural was, oh, no, that's not that's not me. That's not (laughs) I can't do that. And then after reading your book more, I said, oh, my goodness, that is that is cultural, that there's nothing doctrinal about that. And and in fact, as you pointed out, there's so many stories of these persons from different religious sects who have talked about how the, how the cross and the crucifixion, the, um, the crucifix represented the living Christ. And it was a huge change for me. And I love the point that you made about in your book, you talk about there being a time in history when the differences of the church of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, as compared to other religious sects were important, just like you talked about, you know, but now in this divisive and divided world, maybe what's important is our similarities. This is a bridge to relate to other Christians in the world, the other 99%. So what does this unifying religious symbol of the cross and the crucifix mean to you? And what can it mean for us today? Well, first of all, I just want to make it clear that you are great if you don't have a cross in your house. I'm I'm certainly not (laughs) advocating that everyone needs to wear a cross necklace. Um, What I am advocating is that we completely eliminate any kind of stigma around wearing a cross or displaying a cross. There's Mm -hmm. never been a time in general conference where a church leader has said, don't do that. There's never been an official church handbook that says, don't wear a cross, don't display a cross. Obviously, you don't worship the cross, right? But mm-hmm. um, here's here's like a concrete example. I had a similar upbringing to you, and when I was on my mission, if I saw someone wearing a cross necklace, there was immediately sort of a, almost a negative reaction. They kind of like, "Ooh, that that's the other, that's them." Yeah, yeah. Whereas now, if I were a missionary, I would go up to that person and be like, "I see you're wearing a cross. That's awesome. Like, do you believe in Jesus?" And yeah. you know, some people are wearing just for a fashion accessory, so the question could backfire. But I think most times people <laughs> be like. Yeah, I totally believe in Jesus. I'm like, me too. And here's this opportunity for me to share a quote from the Book of Mormon about the cross or Mm -hmm. the crucifixion. There's so many um, ways that this could now be a bridge. I was in Mexico a couple of years ago at at a conference. And every time I would hop in an Uber, 
oh, the taxi driver had this large cross hanging from his rearview mirror. And so it became this easy conversation piece for me to start a conversation and say, well, I I can tell that you believe in Jesus. I do too. Let's talk about him. Yes. I love that. Yes. Well, and like you said, it's not that we're worried about people not having a cross in their home. We're worried about people like me who then that's translated to then not studying more fully the crucifixion and, and Christ's time and build up to um, the cross. So yeah, that, that's exactly right. Recently so, I talked with a woman and she, um, she lived in the South and someone, one of her neighbors came over to her daughter's baptism and gave her a cross necklace and it's a baptism gift. And the daughter, like her face kind of was like, Oh no, what do I do? And she the mom, the mom's face was also like, Oh no, what do we do? And the neighbors like could sense their discomfort. And she took the necklace back. She's like, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize this was an inappropriate gift. And the mom who was, you know, telling me the story years later, she's in tears just saying, I miss this opportunity to share the gospel, to build on common beliefs. Cause I was so freaked out about a symbol. And and I think that's, that's the kind of thing that we can work to eliminate. And then, as you said, emphasize the doctrinal significance of Christ's crucifixion and and study that. Yeah. The bridge to missionary work is significant. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I I had this similar feeling. I see a cross, I think, oh, that's a difference, but instead, no, that's a similarity. That's common ground. I love that. So then what is your response? Because this is what I heard growing up. I mean, my mom said this very same thing to me, right? What is your response when saints say they'd rather focus on the living Christ instead of, you know, the one on the cross? I mean, assuming that the cross doesn't represent the living Christ, right? Yeah. So, and that's a great question. And again, like that's, if for you, the cross is a a symbol that brings pain or hurt, like that's okay. I'm not saying that you have to have one. But let's also notice what the scriptures teach. So Jacob, the prophet Jacob in Jacob chapter one says that he wants everyone to view Christ's death. That's an interesting phrase that we don't hear a lot about. Or in Moroni chapter nine, Mormon writes to Moroni and says, he hopes that the death of Christ will rest in your mind forever. Mm. Or Jesus, when he says in Doctrine and Covenants 6, 37, Uh, behold, which means fix your eyes upon the wounds, which pierced my side and my hands and my feet. There's multiple scriptural passages that invite us to ponder and reflect specifically on the savior's death and his crucifixion wounds. Mm. And so I I would say, I'm not trying to make anyone do something that's painful or, or harmful, but let's also maybe be aware that there might be some opportunities for spiritual power in our lives that maybe we've missed and maybe there's a certain kind of aspect of cultural upbringing that um, has made it. So we're not seeing some spiritual power that is available to us through taking Jacob's invitation to Mm -hmm. view Christ's death. Well, and I love that you, that you phrase it as spiritual power. That's exactly right. When we study the atonement of Jesus Christ, it is empowering. And, and in your book, you talked about I mean, I want to say this correctly, so you'll help me, but, um, you talked about people mentioning the living Christ and you thought, I think you remarked about maybe the cross represents the loving Christ. And I loved, I loved how you phrased that because that was his ultimate act of love for us was dying for us. And so now personally, now, when I see a cross, 
I see the love of Christ. Like I'm going to wherever I'm going to get across and I'm going to put it in my home because now for me, that symbol means something beautiful and personal, which is what I hope that it can mean. Even if you don't want to have one in your home, I hope that it can mean a loving Christ and you can still celebrate the living Christ. Did I phrase that correctly from your book? That was perfect. And and I love how you just said it's not a competition, right? It's not either the living Christ or the loving Christ. It's both. Yeah. And I mean, Jesus himself defined his greatest act of love as his death. He said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So I, I do think that that is a great reframe to remember that it's the loving Christ and the living Christ. We worship both. It's not a competition. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You've done so much research and you're so thoughtful about the crucifixion and, and the, and, and Christ's buildup to the crucifixion, right? It's not just his time on the cross. A lot of the pain and anguish that he felt was the buildup to being lifted up on the cross. And, and I'm wondering, you know, what elements of the crucifixion are essential in its difference from the suffering in Gethsemane. So to, to kind of clarify this for our listeners, you know, both Gethsemane and Calvary are considered as a part of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Together, your book is very clear that together they accomplish the same eternally significant task. But importantly, the events are not the same. They're two different events. So what elements of the crucifixion are crucial to our understanding, our testimonies, and knowing Christ that differ from the elements of suffering in Gethsemane? I hope that question makes sense. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and to be honest with you, it, it actually highlights a danger. We have a tendency, I think, as, as humans, we want to compartmentalize. and We want to like have nice little boxes, like here's the Gethsemane box, here's the crucifixion right. box, and now we know. Yeah. The scriptures actually don't, don't really answer that question super well. Um, it, here, and here's an example. You'll, you'll often hear someone say, Something like this. Jesus suffered for our sins and overcame spiritual death in Gethsemane. And then later, separately, he overcame physical death on the cross. They're trying to make these two different aspects of the Savior's atonement happening in two different locations. Mm-hmm. Well, Elder Gerald Munn called that a doctrinal error. Mm-hmm. He said, nowhere in scripture do we find justification for this idea. And I've heard other people say, well, you know, Gethsemane is a private suffering and the cross is a public suffering. And and there's all sorts of different ways that we could try to, you know, create delineations. But the reality is that the scriptures themselves don't do that. I I love the quote from President James E. Faust, where he said, any increase in our understanding of the Savior's atoning sacrifice draws us closer to him. So, So for me, I think there's a lot I can learn about Gethsemane. There's a lot I can learn about the cross and let's learn all I can about every aspect of the savior's atonement. Mm -hmm. And then as a result, grow closer to him. So, so to answer your question, I think one, one thing is that there's a lot more verses about Christ's crucifixion than there are Christ's sufferings in Gethsemane. And so if nothing else, it gives me a lot more material to work with and understand. Recently, President Russell and Nelson said that all of the Savior's sufferings in Gethsemane were intensified. Those are his words, intensified as Christ was cruelly crucified on Calvary's cross. So I think you, 
you and me, uh, the average Latter-day Saint, whatever it is that we are conceiving of is taking place in Gethsemane. President Nelson says that was intensified as Christ is crucified. So Mm -hmm. it's not just the pain of crucifixion, the physical realities of being whipped and then nailed to a cross, which like should not be understated. In addition to that, there's the spiritual agony of of suffering for the sins of the world. What what Christ experienced, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, lots of people were crucified. What's unique about Christ's atonement is Gethsemane, but that completely misunderstands what Christ experienced on the cross. His experience was different from every other crucifixion victim. Right, right. I once heard it said that Christ being the savior of the world, you know, being of the father, but being also of Mary, it didn't mean that the, that his atoning sacrifice was easier. It meant that he was able to take on more, right. He was able to, to withstand even more pain, um, like an atonement for the sins of the world. Earlier, you mentioned that there are more scriptures detailing Christ's crucifixion. And, and maybe that might be when I read your book that I'm realizing that's probably because disciples of Christ personally witnessed the Savior suffering on the cross. And in contrast, no one on earth personally witnessed the suffering in Gethsemane. They slept. Both events were prophesied of and taught, but only the suffering on the cross was personally witnessed. So what significance is this fact to you and our need to more deeply consider and ponder the cross? And like you said, it's all together, you know, so Gethsemane and the cross. But again, maybe we have an aversion to studying the cross. So what does this detailed account that we have um, mean to you in our studies? That's a great question. You know, to step back, you kind of you kind of pointed out that uh, if, if you have disciples who are sleeping, that maybe there's more source material to write about for the crucifixion than Gethsemane. I do think it's really interesting, like, like we mentioned earlier, that there's one person who's present for both events, Jesus Christ. Hmm. And so in the Book of Mormon, in the Doctrine and Covenants, he could talk a lot about Gethsemane if he wanted to, but he doesn't. There's the one passage in Doctrine and Covenants section 19. But over and over again, the, the very first thing that Jesus says when he visits the people in 3 Nephi chapter 11 is, I am Jesus Christ. I was slain for the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. And then he invites the people to come up and feel the marks in his hands and in his feet. And just a few hours later, when he administers the sacrament to them, he says, I want you to remember this body that I've shown unto you. And the body that he had shown unto them, he emphasized his crucifixion wounds. So over and over again in the Book of Mormon, in the Doctrine and Covenants, and also in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is emphasizing his crucifixion. And for me, that's, that's a clear reminder that I shouldn't underemphasize it. Right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't make some, you know, I shouldn't say, well, you know, they just wrote about it because it was graphic or something like that. It's, it's clearly important to Jesus himself. Um, I, I think too, you, you mentioned prophecy that, you know, you, you have very early in the book of Mormon, first uh, Nephi chapter 11 is Jesus. Uh, Nephi in a vision sees Jesus Christ lifted up upon a cross these are Nephi's words and slain for the sins of the world. Yeah. Um, another example that, that people may 
sometimes not think of as, as often is found in the book of Moses. You've got the prophet Enoch, and he's been teaching and testifying for decades. Then he has a vision and sees that all of these people he's been teaching, their descendants, they're all going to be destroyed in the flood. And his heart breaks. I mean, imagine how you would feel if all these people you've been teaching, trying to help, they're all going to fall away. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the scriptural phrase, Enoch says he had bitterness of soul. Mm-hmm. And then he turns to the Lord and in vision, he sees Jesus Christ lifted up upon the cross. Mm-hmm. And to that, that's so powerful that the answer to the heartache Enoch was experiencing was found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, so I think that that is actually one one reason why I think we could spend a little bit more time studying and pondering the crucifixion. It, it is graphic. It is painful. For many people, they experience graphic pain. And mm-hmm. if I try to shield them from the crucifixion, I might be robbing them of an opportunity to connect with a Savior who really understands the pain that they're personally experiencing. Yeah. So I think that that's one, one value. Uh, another one has to do with just some of the lessons that we can learn surrounding Christ's crucifixion. For example, as Christ is on trial before Pilate, Pilate, there, a lot of people aren't aware that there's other stories about Pilate outside the Bible. Historians like Josephus and Philo, they, they wrote stories about Pilate. And when you read these stories about Pilate, you realize that he's had lots of arguments with the Jewish authorities prior to Christ's crucifixion. So then when Jesus is on trial and the Jewish authorities say, hey, if you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. All of a sudden, there's a lot more meaning in that sentence. And you see Pilate buckle under peer pressure or the story of Barabbas, which, you know, some of us like may gloss over. But you start to see how these somewhat minor characters, Barabbas, Pilate, and, and others, their stories at the cross then become powerful. And, and I can connect and relate those stories to my life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in reading your book, that's a great way to describe how I felt in reading your book is I felt connected. I felt more connected to Christ. And it was through these insights that you shared from Pilate and Barabbas, but also I felt connected because I more deeply saw the suffering that Christ suffered, that he, that he felt. And that connection is like that word that you used earlier. It's empowering for my life and it's empowering for all of us to study. And, and that kind of leads into another thought that I wanted to talk to you about. And I wanted mostly because I want you to be able to share it with our listeners is what is the benefit of studying the Christ who suffered, specifically the events where he suffered leading up to and on the cross. You share some beautiful scriptural verses that Christ said as he was suffering and shared personal accounts from others who how this suffering is what uplifted them. But I'm, I want you, you know, I wanted to talk about this and how studying the suffering helps us. Well, you mentioned the seven statements that Christ says from the cross. And, and that I think is a, a really profitable thing to study and contemplate and consider, especially on Good Friday. Good mm-hmm. Friday might be a, a holiday that Latter-day Saints don't celebrate as, as much as we could. We're probably great at Christmas and great <laughs> at Easter. 
But Good Friday is a powerful day to step back. In. And in a lot of Christian traditions, there'll be a, a three-hour service, church service on Good Friday. We're not the only ones that used to have three-hour church. Um, well, so then in these but, other denominations, can you explain what is Good Friday? What is celebrated on Good Friday? Yeah, so Good Friday is the day that Jesus Christ is crucified. And, and you might think, well, what's good about that? Um, but the, one thing, I mean, we could go into the etymology of the word, but one thing that is good about Good Friday is it's the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he did die for us so that we can repent, return to live with him and our heavenly father. And, and so it, it actually doesn't have to, you don't have to go to a three hour church service, but like that is a, a traditional thing that many Christians will do. Go to a church service, there'll be a, a sermon on these seven statements of Christ from the cross. But I think Good Friday could be a time for us to just read the crucifixion accounts. There's there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you read them side by side, there's unique stories that are only in one or only in the other. And you can get this powerful whole of studying Christ's crucifixion by reading these accounts side by side. It's called a synopsis uh, study. And I've got a handout um, you can just download. I, I can put it in the show notes if people want to, mm. to give that a try. Um, but kind of going back to what you said about some of these statements in Matthew and Mark, Jesus only says one statement from the cross and it's my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if we're watching a movie of Christ's crucifixion, usually there'll be some later statements because John and Luke provide some additional statements, but just imagine that you, all you have is Matthew or Mark. And the last thing that Christ says is that cry of abandonment, a feeling forsaken. I think that helps us connect with a savior who suffers because sometimes you or I might feel abandoned, completely alone. No one understands, but now I can see, okay, wait, Jesus on the cross felt that same way. He can understand. Uh, someone that might surprise you um, with this story is Mother Teresa. I mean, she's this super saint. And she had some powerful experiences drawing close to God as a young adult. But then in her later life, she experienced decades where she felt disconnected from God. And I love that in her moment of feeling abandoned, not just moment, in her years of yes. feeling abandoned, yeah. she continued faithful. And that's what Jesus models on the cross. He's abandoned. He feels forsaken and alone but he still goes forward. That's a model for you and me when we feel abandoned. Uh, so, so that's, I think, one example of a phrase from the cross that can be really powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember reading that excerpt about Mother Teresa and feeling like, what, even Mother Teresa, but then reading about how she was uplifted because of the suffering of Christ, of feeling abandoned. Yeah, absolutely. Again, he did all of this for us. And that's why in these moments that are personal to us, it's, it's just ways to relate to Christ and what he went through. That's, I mean, it, this is a broken record, but it's why he did what he did, right? To relate and to love us. Yeah. Another phrase um, that really stands out to me is the conversation between Jesus and the thief. So the thief says to Jesus, uh, there, there's one that's making fun of Jesus. Then the other thief says, hey, stop doing that. We deserve our punishment, but Jesus doesn't. And then he turns to Jesus and says, save me, you know, will you let me come to you? And Jesus's response to him is, verily I say unto you, 
this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. And for some reason, when I was growing up, I, I always heard that verse with a footnote that said, hey, there's no deathbed repentance. You've got to be baptized to get to heaven. What Jesus really means is like, you'll go to a spirit prison. And you know, if you're lucky, someone will come knock on your door one day and teach you about the gospel. But, but actually, that kind of puts a box around Jesus's grace and mercy. I mean, yeah. First of all, how do I know that the person hadn't been baptized, right? I, I don't know anything about his heart in that moment. Joseph Smith, when in, in one of his sermons, he paraphrases that statement and says that what Jesus Christ was saying is, I personally will be with you in the world of spirits, and then I will tell you all about it. We know that in general, Jesus didn't go uh, to all of the wicked. He organized amongst the righteous missionaries to go to spirit prison. But that doesn't mean that Jesus couldn't have gone and talked to a specific person. And, and I love that thought from Joseph Smith, that Jesus is saying to the thief on the cross, I will personally be with you in the spirit world. And we're going to talk about these things. Yeah. I love artwork about Jesus Christ. I've never seen a, a picture of Jesus and the thief on the cross next to each other in the spirit world. But that's, a, that's an image I love to imagine. Yeah. And that statement is a reminder that you can't put a box around Jesus's love, mercy, and grace. He, he met the thief on the cross where he was. And he's going to meet you and me where we are. Mm, yeah. One thing that Christ talks about in the scriptures that you've mentioned is Christ's death is central to his teachings and he utilizes it in his advocacy for us. And when I read that, I thought that was a beautiful imagery. I'm thinking of myself, you know, dying and Christ is there as my advocate and I'm talking and, and, you know, and I'm thinking about all the things that I've done wrong, you know, and this isn't supposed to be like a woe is me thing, but I, I truly am thinking about, I am a sinner, but I'm thinking about Christ next to me who can wholeheartedly and honestly say that he has experienced what I have experienced and that's his advocacy for us. And he suffered alongside me. We feel Christ currently to uplift us. He can say, no, I, I know what this person went through. And I think that's what makes him such a beautiful advocate. And to me, that's what I loved about your book was this focus on studying the suffering of Christ. I know that he's a better advocate for me because of it. Yeah. And in section 45, he directly says that he says yeah. that he, he uses his sufferings and death. That's his point of advocacy for us. Yeah. It, it reminds me of a conversation I had with one person, though. She said, I don't, I just don't want to think about the scourging. I don't want to picture Christ on the cross. Like it's too painful. And I think there's an irony there. Mm. And I, I, like, I want to be gentle because I know that probably a lot of our listeners feel this way. But we, we often hope that Jesus Christ understands our pain. Is it too much to ask for us to learn a little bit about his pain? Yeah. And it's impossible for us to fully comprehend the suffering that Christ experienced on the cross. But Elder Callister said that the impossibility of, of, of knowing everything shouldn't diminish our desire to know what is knowable. Yeah. And, and so while it's not the focus of the book, there, there is one chapter that describes what we know from historical sources about Roman crucifixion. And I kind of give like a little disclaimer at the beginning, you know, saying this is what this chapter is about. Some of you are going to want to skip this chapter, but I recommend you don't yeah. because either you, if you haven't experienced extreme pain and suffering in your life, you're going to be teaching someone who has. And 
and there's, there's a story that I tell about a woman and she doesn't go into the details of the type of abuse or abandonment that she's experienced, but it's whatever it is, it's been terrible. You can tell. Mm. And she talks about how growing up, she always kind of saw a PG version of Jesus. He's frowning a little bit with the crown of thorns. And then all of a sudden it's over. But in her moment of extreme suffering, she can, she, she kind of saw in her mind, Jesus as he really was on the cross, not just with a, a few drops of blood, but truly bleeding profusely these scars, fresh, fresh wounds, uh, not yeah. scars, but fre- you know, fresh wounds from the scourging now reopened on the cross. And for her, as she saw that savior, mm-hmm. she realized he understands who I am. And that opened an avenue. Uh, another story that, that really touches my heart. And I, I think is we got to be sensitive with it, but um, it's actually has shown to be healing for some people. So, so the reality of, according to historical sources is that people who are crucified were either crucified naked or wearing very little clothing. Yeah. The earliest artwork that we have of crucifixion depicts the person being crucified as naked. Yeah. And that's something that we probably don't want to think about, but Corey Tenboom, who was a Christian uh, arrested and put into a Nazi concentration camp because she was trying to help hide Jews tells the story of her and her sister being forced uh, for to take off their clothes every Friday for what the Nazis called a medical inspection. And it was humiliating. It was horrifying. But this thought comes to her one day as she and her sister are standing in this line and she turns to her sister and says, he was naked too. Yeah. And all of a sudden she didn't feel alone. Yeah. And I think that when we understand different aspects of Christ's suffering, it can be healing for those who have suffered tremendous trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm reminded of when you go to a hospital and you see, and you walk into the chapel, oftentimes there's a, a, a cross and I, and I'm, I'm just linking that now in the place where people are suffering and they're trying to find healing that's where they see a Christ and they can relate to him who is also suffering, right? There's just so much more meaning for me now after studying these things about the suffering Christ, you share a story, an analogy about, um, an antique. And it's so Mm -hmm. funny that sometimes an antique can be sitting in your home for a long time, but then you take it to someone who tells you it's worth and you say, and you, you're, you're just delighted, right? You're so happy to know it's worth. And that's what I feel when I go through and I study the suffering of Christ. I know my worth. I know the price that he was willing to pay for me. And I just want to thank you because that was a beautiful analogy that really stuck with me from your book. As Latter-day Saints, we want to stay in this abstract space in regard to the Savior's atonement and to his crucifixion. We almost talk about it in platitudes while having an attitude that the Savior's atoning sacrifice is too incomprehensible for us to understand. It's too much, just like you shared that quote, um, it's just abstract. But a theme I hear in your book is, yes, in this life, we probably won't come to fully know and understand all the components of the Savior's atonement, but we are invited to come to know as much as we can. And everything that we do learn will uplift us and will strengthen us. And I, I can't remember, maybe you would know, but was it Elder Holland who said that we can find fortitude in a suffering savior? And I just, yeah, one of the things, 
one of the things that Elder Holland's talked about is how the scars on Christ's hands and feet are reminders to mm-hmm. him and to us that bad things happen to good people. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about this age old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, Christ on the cross, he knows and understands we can find that strength in the suffering savior. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you talk about the, can you share about the analogy of the camp? What it says is basically um, at the time people were brought outside the city. Like, so crucifixion was outside the city. And mm. in the book of Hebrews, it says, let us also go with him without the camp and bear the abuse that he endured. Mm. And that's not suggesting that you know, we should remain in abusive relationships, but I think sometimes um, I don't know. I have the perspective that everyone should treat me politely and my whole life should be magical and great. <laughs> but when some, you know, like, let's say I have a child who's being a little bit rude to me, I could lash back or mentally I can go with Jesus without the camp and bear the abuse he endured. I can remember that Jesus didn't fight back. He, he had the power to, right. Mm-hmm. He could have. And, and I think it's the old Christ on the cross is the ultimate example of turning the other cheek. And then that, that provides a model for me and a reminder for me of the importance of, of being meek and lowly of heart. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. I want to talk about now about the symbolism um, and ordinances in the church and how it ties to the crucifixion and to the atonement of Jesus Christ. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is another one where some of it's obvious, maybe some's a little less obvious, but it's all over the place. So baptism is a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We become new creatures, but as part of that, we die, right? As we're fully immersed in the water, we are buried. Um, the sacrament is an, is an obvious one. The, in the blessing on the water, it talks about the shedding of the blood of Christ, and as I've talked with students, I've asked them, when it says the shedding of the blood of Christ, do you think that's talking about Gethsemane or the cross? And if I only give them those two choices, a vast majority will say, oh, it's about Gethsemane, of course. Uh, in the scriptures, the phrase shedding of blood or shed blood being shed uh, appears dozens of times, and it's a reference to death. There's more than 40 times in scripture where it's, it's explicit that shedding blood equals death. So when Jesus says, I want you to remember my blood, which was shed for you, that's an invitation specifically, scripturally speaking, to remember his death. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that you shouldn't think about Gethsemane during the sacrament, but I think for, for some people, that will be another window and avenue to consider Christ's death during the sacrament. And in fact, Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he uses a word that we don't use very often. The word is shoe, S-H-E-W. He says, every time you partake of the bread and water at the sacrament, you shew the Lord's death. Well, I looked up that word and it actually means the Greek word that's translated shoe means to publicly proclaim or to testify of. So Paul's saying, every time you partake of the sacrament, you are publicly proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So you and I might not bear our testimonies uh, this next fast Sunday. But if we take the sacrament, we are publicly testifying of the death of Christ. Mm. Uh, um, The endowment is full of crucifixion imagery. And I'll I'll give one example that, you know, I know not everyone in this podcast has been endowed or been to a sealing ordinance, but just as an example, to consider the sealing ordinance Mm. in the center of a sealing room is an altar 
that's a symbol of death, specifically the death of Christ. Mm. Elder Bruce C. Hafen talked about performing a sealing ceremony. And he says that he invited the husband and wife to kneel across each other from the altar and then join hands across the altar. So whether you think of the altar or the hands clasped together on the altar, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is literally at the center of a sealing ordinance. Yeah. And, and I think that's when you kind of say it that way, it's you're like, oh yeah, well, that, that's obvious. But maybe some of us haven't considered that. And so when mm-hmm. I realized Christ's crucifixion is central to my sealing ordinance, all of a sudden, maybe that can change my relationship with my spouse. And I can remember how Christ acted on the cross. He was concerned about his mother. He said, mother, behold your son. Or uh, to the thief, he said, you'll be with me today in paradise. So he's focusing on the needs of others, even in his own extreme trial. And now I see that Christ on the cross is part of my marriage. Do, am I doing that in my marriage? Am I so focused on my needs or am I turning outward to help others? And, and for me, I think that one insight about the centrality of Christ's crucifixion in the sealing ordinance uh, can be a really powerful reminder for those who have uh, partaken of that ordinance. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's beautiful. And hopefully as we study more about Christ and his atonement, we can see him and see this, the symbolism more as we study the scriptures, as we are in church, we can just see Christ more in our lives, which is what we want, right? That's the end goal. <laughs> have Christ be at the center. Yeah. And real quick, I'm glad that you mentioned that because our conversation has focused on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And obviously this is something I'm passionate about. And it's, it's one area where we can learn more about Jesus, but I'm not suggesting that it is the only thing that we should study with Jesus. What I learned from the, I I spent about four years, I'm, I'm still actually doing some studies in this area, but I spent about four years deeply studying Christ's crucifixion. And what I learned is here's an, a big aspect of Christ's life. And I thought I knew everything there was to know about it, but it turns out there's tons I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And now I realize, oh, that's probably true with the birth of Christ, the parables of Christ, the miracles of Christ. The more we can study and learn about every aspect of Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice, the more we will feel close to him and love him. And the more we love him, the more we'll want to follow him. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. I want to read an excerpt from your book. So it's on, it's, um, let's see, page 90. I'm saying page 90, like this is a follow along. Everybody open your books. (laughs) (laughs) So um, let's see the second full paragraph. In 1989, Elder John H. Groberg of the 70 testified that Christ saw us from Calvary. I feel that as he hung upon the cross and looked out over the dark scene, he saw more than mocking soldiers and cruel taunters. His huge, magnanimous, loving soul encompassed all eternity and took in all people and all times and all sins and all forgiveness and all everything. Yes, he saw down to you and to me and provided us an all-encompassing opportunity to escape the terrible consequences of death and sin, end quote. And then you say, Christ saw down to you and me in that moment. Can you picture yourself looking up at him how would it feel to lock eyes with the one who perfectly understands us? You know, as we wrap things up, I wanted to emphasize that the atonement of Jesus Christ is all encompassing, just as the quote describes, just as you talk about, but importantly, the atonement of Jesus Christ is personal. 
And just like the stories that you shared in your book and your personal stories, when we study the atonement of Jesus Christ, we can feel that personal love for us. He suffered for us individually. And I've loved what meaning your book has given me to studying the atonement and his crucifixion. I see, I truly do see a loving Christ and I know my worth. And I want to invite our listeners to study the atonement of Jesus Christ. And the takeaway is don't forget the cross, consider the cross and Christ's suffering on Calvary. John, thank you so much for your time and for your testimony. I appreciate your insights and your thoughtfulness and, and all of the research and the time that you have taken to share all of this knowledge with us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kimberly. It's been a joy to converse with you today. Listeners, thank you for being with us. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. For updates on episode releases and a little motivation, you can find us on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschrist sr podcast. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing to help us spread the word about Still Rowing. Thanks for listening.